There are certain things that good horror needs to do. On a basic level, it needs to scare you. But good horror isn't always about the jump scares and the immediate short-term thrill. Good horror isn't afraid to probe into the unknown, both outside in the vast darkness around us and the unknown deep within us all. Good horror clutches at the primal, instinctual fears that plague us on a level that go beyond the conscious and stays with you long after it's finished. Experiencing good horror is one thing, but how do you create it? Crafting a piece of work that resonates with an audience is always a challenge, but surely that's the point of creating art. In the case of horror, you need to carefully establish the norm within your world before subverting it, placing something there that shouldn't be, or highlighting the jarring absence of something that should. When it comes to comics, some of the usual tropes of horror can be difficult to recreate. Things like music and pacing are either absent or somewhat out of your hands as a creator when it comes to crafting the audience's experience. Good horror comics instead focus on the mood of a piece, the atmosphere of the scene, and use the combination of words and pictures to plant things in your mind that then take root and stay with you long after you turn the final page. My name's Matt Loon. And today on the show, I'm joined by Lonnie Nadler and Jenna Char to discuss their book, Black Stars Above, as well as the weird fiction that influences their craft. This is That's the Issue. Uh, Hey, this is Lonnie Nadler. You might know me from previous comics such as Age of X-Men, X-Men Black, uh, Cable, The Dregs, and Come Into Me, and I'm currently working on a book called Black Stars Above that comes out in November. Hi, my name is Jenna Cha. Um, I am the artist for Black Stars Above. Um, You don't know me from anything unless you're from the Minneapolis area and maybe saw me at a con once or twice. Um, this uh, Black Stars Above will be my debut into the comic world. Um, welcome to That's the Issue both. Um, it's really lovely to, to have you both in the chat and really uh, exciting to talk about Black Stars Above with you both. But I'll start with um, I'll start with you then, Jenna. As you say, this is your first um, your first kind of foray into comic books. How has the experience yeah. been for you? Oh, it's been it's been crazy. Mm. <laughs> I'm glad that's an honest answer. Sometimes people go, oh yeah, oh, yeah it's fine. <laughs> oh no, no, like I'll be, I'll be totally honest. It's, it's like, you know, it's very, very, very crazy. Um, yeah, I was, I asked, or I, I answered a question from a, a previous online interview of how my experience has been. And I think one of the things I said was, uh, most days I feel like the bus in the movie Speed. <laughs> <laughs> And that's like the best way I could describe it. That's not meant to be the relatable character in that film. That's wonderful. No, but it's like <laughs> the only character I can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where am I in that scenario? Um, a little bit of Sandra Bullock, a little bit of Keanu, a little bit of Dennis Hopper. All right, mostly, mostly Dennis Hopper. That, that's thing. what I wanted. Just by virtue of you know who you are in general. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean- yeah. yeah, I was gonna say like that makes Lonnie sound like the crazy one, but then you did drive through like a pram full of cat like cans, <laughs> like a stroller full of like tin cans at one point. So I mean, you know. I mean, I had to. It's like I couldn't, 
I couldn't not. That, that's the yeah. whole. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah We're stretching I, uh, the metaphor. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is my first um, my first long form comic, but I, I kind of had like I kind of I kind of knew what I was getting into because um, I went to school to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design for comics, mm. which you know that that alone put me through the ringer already and to a to a certain degree. Um, so I've, I've had like, you know, some exposure to how how long form comics would be. Um, but to actually like, you know, be be working with a publisher and be talking to all all these people in a, you know, in kind of a regimented, in a like semi-regimented, semi-anarchic way. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was like, you know, it's it has been uh, kind of a trial by fire in a way. Um, but I can already I can already tell just like we're on I'm drawing um issue three right now or I'm about to and I'm already kind of feeling the evolution that my work ethic is going through mm. and uh like that isn't to say it's it's like crazy in a bad way it's like it's definitely you know it's it's like the thing I've wanted to do it's the thing I've wanted to do like you know since I was a child so to actually like, I, I feel like most artists say this at one point or another, but like to actually be in a place where it's a it's a profession is is kind of wild. And maybe like it, it maybe it hasn't really sunken in yet. Maybe it'll really sink in until the, the book comes out of like until I like actually feel the the impact of of putting my work out there. But yeah, it's been crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I suppose there's different, as you said, there's different stages, isn't there? Like obviously, you, you know, you're going through the trial by fire of, of not only your skill set of being able to actually, you know, produce long form storytelling through through your art, like sequential storytelling, you know, month by month through these issues. You know, that's a that's a hell of a thing to, to be thrown into the deep end with. But then also there's yeah. the industry yeah. side as well. You know, like, as you say, working with a publisher working with a full team of creators to make sure you get this you know this piece of work out um it's uh, it's a hell of a learning curve i imagine yeah yeah it's um it kind of really taps into your your survivorship too like mm. you really once you're once you're out there all of your skill sets and your instincts come full force i mean a lot of that comes with anxiety and self-doubt i think like once it all comes to fruition you realize that a lot of that anxiety is psychological and um your instinct is is like it's it's like usually very honest and um it usually puts out a good product and it's always it usually it's always like within the artist to be capable of that i feel like i mean again i feel like a lot of artists go through that but um yeah being being put out there through the trial by fire um it's it's like you know it's worthwhile i think and it's constructive you know for one's work ethic yeah and I suppose the next step for you would then, as you say, being getting the book out there, getting people, you know, people's reactions to it, getting reviews and and like, you know, the going to cons and seeing people, you know, react to your art and making fun out <laughs> of their own and stuff like that. And that's that's the that's the road you're on now, isn't it? I suppose. Oh, my God. Don't, don't mind me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, literally, I've just put my foot on the pedal of the, <laughs> the bus, haven't I? <laughs> yeah i think i'm the tin cans in that scenario i've just thrown myself at your at your windshield yeah <laughs> yeah thanks <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and lani this is um another looks to be in another fantastic book for you this is coming straight off uh working on x-men and um and working on coming to me which uh which was come out as well what's it been like work diving into this new project for you 
this one's been interesting. It's the first long-form comic that I've written solo. Uh, I usually write stuff with Zach Thompson. And uh, obviously, Zach and I love working together, but we have we also want to tell our own stories. And so this was my first foray into that uh, sort of singular storytelling, fully isolated writer kind of deal. And it's been very rewarding, but very difficult. And I think, I, but at the same time, it's like, it, because it's the first thing I'm doing by myself, um, at least in comics form, it's the comic that feels like it's the most me. Like it, it's all of my weird idiosyncrasies and my preferences for genre and storytelling are all coming out here. And so I think I'm, I'm super proud of it for that. Does that feel more vulnerable for you as well? Like being the, the sole kind of writing credit on, on a piece of work? In a way, yeah, but it also sort of feels more liberating because mm. it's like there's no one else to rely on if like people don't like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't be. Oh, Zach's the problem this time. <laughs> yeah, that well, one was Zach. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry everyone. I tried to stop totally, it. You, you can totally blame me because it's my first comic, so it's an, an excuse to be like, "Oh, she." Yeah, but, but people will see the art and they'll be like, "Well, the art's good, but like, right." <laughs> Well, you can, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been great. And um, obviously, like I'm working with with Jenna, who's a big part of the storytelling and and Brad Simpson is coloring it and, and Hassan is lettering it. So it's not like to say it's my first solo venture is like kind of unfair to say. But I guess in a sense that like it started from me, like building it from the ground up at the beginning, at least. So it's been scary and rewarding and surprising yeah and crazy yes and crazy yeah absolutely by the signs of things yeah so let's um let's dive into the actual uh, book itself and so black stars above um it's coming out in november from vault comics um as you say it's uh, it's the two of you it's brad simpson on colors uh hassan oxman on letters and i i looked you know online or a few of the when the announcements came out and there was a few descriptions and there was um references to uh, it was like the revenant meets silent hill meets at uh, the mountains of madness but rather than kind of other people describing it how do you how do you guys describe the book it's funny because i think that like the revenant meets silent hill was like literally the first line of the first pitch document i ever made for this ah, thing that's wild so that was actually your words then. it was but that's like it's sort of like haunted me all through this because that's <laughs> really what it is at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was just, you know, it's one of those like elevator pitch things that you kind of have to get out there. Mm. Uh, but the story's evolved so much since then that that's not quite accurate anymore. Yeah. It's definitely, I imagine it's quite, um, it's quite reassuring to be able to lean on, on, on kind of a shortcut, like shorthand way of describing things like that also. But I imagine then the pressure is on to, to kind of reach those things because people are never going to compare them like compare works to 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 bad things either they're all going to say oh yeah this is the next you know the, loads of tv shows like what's well, the next game of thrones and it's like well yeah, you know, yeah. that was a massive piece of work you know so you, <laughs> I, I get it you know i totally get it and it, it, it as you say as an elevator pitch it works perfectly but then as you say the pressure's on to to kind of build up to that yeah i used to really like resist having those kind of pitches because i hated them and like the idea of like especially at the start of my career, comparing my work to be like, oh, it's it's this book meets like Watchmen or whatever. I never did that. But <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. as an example, and it's like, obviously, I know I'm not like living up to that standard. 
but then I sort of realized it's it has nothing to do with the actual product. It's solely a a sales tactic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think I learned that from Brian K. Vaughan, where he said, pitch the book to be sold and then write something completely different from what you pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Use it as a jumping off point. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think um, for me, because yeah, being a comics reviewer, I've always resisted that urge to to compare, especially you know comparing creator to creator. You know that that's to me that's a massive no no to say oh this person this person draws like this person or this person writes in the style of this person because I think that's quite reductive. But then you know it, it is as a marketing standpoint it works doesn't it because you know if i like this one thing i'm more likely to pick it up if they say oh you know if you like silent hill or the revenant like this is you know this is a good a good fit for you you know even though it might not be anything like it by the end you know it's a if i'm a fan of those works then diving into that makes sense so where do you where does the without obviously spoiling the plot like how do you feel that the book evolves and as the as the series progresses what kind of themes and directions are you looking to take this series oh yeah sorry i didn't answer your actual question <laughs> no, <that's fine. laughs> so the book is set during the the canadian fur trade the tail end of the 19th century so it was when the fur trade was pretty much dead and it follows a uh, a young woman named eulalie dubois who uh, her family was sort of pushed out of um, what is now known as Manitoba, and they live in like a very secluded cabin where they maintain their trap line throughout the winter. And uh, she sort of has a, a pretty like like what we would consider now a shitty life, even though then it was just life. Um, and uh, but she has these desires, you know. She's a young woman. She she reads a lot. Uh, she reads like her her grandfather's old newspapers and has a strong desire to see the rest of the world. And um, some family drama happens that uh, augments this desire to, to leave. And she's presented the opportunity to do so when a very strange man offers her a uh, mysterious package that needs delivering to a nameless town through the woods. Mm. Uh, and then it gets real weird <laughs> <laughs> from there on out. Yeah. It's, it talks about like eldritch kind of horror and touching on that. I mean, a lot of the... I think, you know, Lovecraft is something we're going to talk about a little later as well. But some of the, the big themes, the the big wide, like sweeping themes of, of Lovecraft's work is the idea of, um, you know, the, of touching the unknown, you know, of the, the, the fear of the, the unknowable and the um, and the unimaginable that's out there. Is that something that you wanted to evoke? Because Black Stars Above is has got like even as a title, that's got a very um it, it does evoke the kind of idea of just being a vast void of of, of, yeah. of something unknown isn't it totally yeah it was obviously a deliberate choice to to make it quote-unquote lovecraftian but i think i think lovecraft is used he was an obvious touch point but um i think it was more influenced by other weird fiction writers like algernon blackwood and arthur Machen, mm. and people like that who influenced lovecraft himself those are the I, I I love H.P. Lovecraft, but those are the ones that I found afterwards that I, I really resonated with. Um, and they were dealing with, you know, sort of cosmic horror in their own right. And so I wanted to do that, but I also don't want it to be derivative of Lovecraft's work. I'm trying like very hard to make sure it doesn't just feel like we're adding to the Cthulhu mythos or anything like that, because uh, that's something that's pretty popular in contemporary weird fiction. And I wanted to really stretch my my own boundaries as a storyteller and see 
what my version of weird fiction looks like, what my version of cosmic horror looks like. And it's impossible to entirely stray from from Lovecraft and, and Blackwood and stuff, but uh, I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask what made this um, a story that you, you wanted to tell? Um, and I think you kind of touched on that a little bit anyway, really, with the idea of wanting this to be your own version of that kind of cosmic fiction. Is that where this, um, the germ of the idea started? Uh, no, that's like, it's, it's funny because like the, the cosmic horror stuff, that's just like everything I write happens to be colored by horror. <laughs> in some uh, and so it actually stemmed out of, uh, I was reading, uh, Margaret Atwood wrote a nonfiction book called Survival that's sort of a survey of, of Canadian literature uh, and what unites Canadian literature. And it's this idea of, of surviving and survival in its many forms. And while I was reading it, um, I really wanted to tell a distinctly Canadian survival story, but also one that wasn't derivative and one that was dealing with more contemporary personal themes. And so I had this image in my head while I was reading it of uh, this young woman in a snowstorm going through like the intense Canadian wilderness uh, with this parcel in her hand. And there was these, then the cosmic horror came into it. And for some reason there were black stars in the sky. <laughs> and uh, all this, you know, it, so it was born out of this image, but really thematically, I, I think it's, and I think this is something that attracted Jenna to the project is that it, it's not just about horror for the sake of it or cosmic horror for the sake of it. It's we're exploring the idea of family and lineage and desires to escape home and what you're born into and whether or not that's ever actually possible and how your family sort of always has a way of following you mm. wherever you go in one way or another. And Jenna, how did this, um, how did these kind of themes and this and this story appeal to you when you first heard about it? Yeah, I, I agree with all of those, those sentiments about cosmic horror being, um, it could be it could be a lot more allegorical than just giant Lovecraftian monsters, mm. you know, hidden <laughs> hidden away or whatever. Yeah. Um, I kind of saw I saw the the cosmic element of um, of Black Stars Above as <clears throat> almost almost as simply as um, sometimes the best way to illustrate the the weight and the um, being at the mercy of the circumstances of your family. And you know the your your lifestyle and the the times you're in. Sometimes the best way to illustrate that is just a giant like mass that's like hovering over you and following you everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's hard to like get people to fully empathize with with characters maybe in those kind of situations. And those those situations are so like they're so open to for people to understand, like, you know, they're so, they're so common. And I think people want to empathize with those things, but, in, but like to really fully um, put across the, the feeling that one has to go through in those circumstances, at least like in my, in my opinion, like I resonate with horror in that, in that regard. Um, Cause sometimes you can't really put those feelings across unless it's in some kind of horrific form or, or just some kind of mm-hmm. other form yeah, so I I was I was attracted to the the imagery that that almost immediately evoked when I was first given the the pitch. Just being just reading like this the the context, like the historical context that the story is in 
but in this like wrapped in a in a cosmic horror blanket I don't really I don't I haven't really seen that in such a way that I would connect with yet so I I like I saw the I saw the world unfold almost immediately when I read the pitch and um I could tell that there was a lot of a lot of investment in the and and research in the storytelling um on Lonnie's part so that was indicative of the richness of of the writing and the like how calculated he wanted the story to be mm. um, yeah was this a daunting first project for you yeah it was um <laughs> it's actually it's it is interesting though cuz um before i was given the before i was presented with the the pitch i was already working on my own personal comic which had very very similar imagery with landscape and just mood so i was already deep into researching and studying the imagery that i would eventually do for black stars above so it was it was daunting but but it was like it was perfect too in a way yeah and i feel like i feel like this was a good this was a good starting point for me in the horror genre because the story isn't it's not overtly horrific. It's not like, you know, in your face, like it's not supposed to be in your face scary. It's actually, it's very, it's kind of inviting and it's like, it's, it could be beautiful. And the imagery, um, the imagery allows itself to be, to just show like the beauty of, you know, the Canadian wilderness and stuff. Mm. So to be able to contrast that somehow with these like, pockets of really weird imagery and this like these like left turns into these like scary like yeah these like scary moments I think that made the that made the language more interesting for me and yeah. um being able to be being able to explore the technical aspect of of the drawing was also very fulfilling and something that I want to that's like an aspect of my of, of comics that I want to um that I like you know find very precious like the the technical side of it and the the design side of it and stuff mm. um do you, do you mean like the structure like the page structure and like the um, panel choices things like that is that the, the yeah kind of and the part? yeah yeah and the um i really i want to become like a better draftsman too mm. like I, I kind of like i guess like i'll eventually talk about this when i you know talk about the uzumaki and stuff but mm. i uh yeah i really value the um the uh, the drawing itself and the like just the technical aspect of of draw of depicting um nature in its beauty and then depicting it you know when it's in these moments of horror and like you know these more moments of intensity and stuff yeah i think the i mean this is something that i'm i'm sure we'll all kind of dive into when we talk a bit more about your influences and things but i think to me the best kind of horror is ones that do have an emotional depth behind them you know the the idea of of having something that you know is just kind of like slasher which is a lot of fun you know i i, I, I like a, a slasher film as well but sometimes the the kind of the kind of horror that gets under your skin and the kind of horror that stays with you um is is almost uh, like a haunting uh as you say like there's a, there is a beauty to it as well isn't there um and that's like that that's a haunting kind of uh almost dreamlike ethereal kind of quality to it and that's the that's the idea of some of the um, some of the influences that we're that we're talking about. Really, is this idea of, of tapping into almost kind of primal fear more mm-hmm. than 
um, more than just a guy with a knife, for example. Yeah, yes. yeah. I don't want to speak for Jenna, but I think like something that connected us both on this project and one of the reasons we get along so well is because we both feel the same way about horror in that we like these slasher movies it's like yeah they're fun but without any sort of intention behind the work the work sort of horror itself becomes superfluous and like we're not interested in telling those kind of stories we've always i've always gravitated towards the other stuff that has emotional weight behind it and uh, not just for the sake of it uh, like we're not here for the gore or for the monsters or any of that those are just things that happen to like be part of this drama that's unfolding and how difficult was that for for both of you really like when it comes to actually you know scripting it for you Lonnie and then for you Jenna to actually portray that on the page because horror in comics is is quite a tricky thing to capture isn't it um and I've you know I've, I've looked through your artwork um Jenna and it's you have like an, a, an amazing skill of capturing the uh like a, a you know a visceral dread in some of your images but there's there's also like a there is also kind of like a, a haunting resonance to it that, that does kind of grab you as a as when you're looking at it um <laughs> and uh, well yeah i didn't know whether that was much of a compliment to say oh it's, it's oh, it so, so horrendous <laughs> but yeah, I mean it in, such a, it's such, in such a good way and and lonnie like i i you know you work on i mean the dregs is a personal favorite of mine because it's again that really kind of dives into this this kind of primal disgust as soon as the main character figures out exactly what's going on around him mm-hmm. um, and you know and eric zavadsky's work that artwork on that is again yeah. is, you know it was, was perfect at capturing that but for you, for you guys how do you you know what lessons you're learning along the way in this in this book particularly but in general in your kind of you know work in in delving into kind of horror in comics you know, how do you how do you go about capturing that that feeling of horror? I mean, I, I think for me, when I'm scripting, it's I'm I'm so hyper aware of horror and all its forms, and especially what modern horror has become in cinema and in comics. And I think, from my perspective, a, a mistake that people make in horror comics is trying to scare the reader uh, with like page turn reveals like not that it's not that we don't do that it's just like we're not we know comics aren't going to give people uh no one's throwing their book down out of fear you know (laughs) i think part of part of uh, when i'm scripting at least it's less about um like how can i scare the reader and it's always for me been more about creating a mood and an atmosphere uh that leads to this sense of uh the uncanny or dread or something that's um it it goes back to this idea of weird fiction, right? It's stuff that's just outside of the norm. And because of that, it leaves you with a distinct feeling that you can't get rid of rather than something in the moment that scares you. And that's what horror has always been to me is it's not the jump scare. It's like after you watch The Exorcist, it's that face that comes up that you're wondering if it's there in the darkness. You know, it's the stuff that stays in your mind. So that's the way I try to script horror and just try to be uh, instinctive about it as opposed to like making it too analytical. Because I, th- I think when you when you build horror scenes too strictly and rigidly, that's when they become like modern horror movies, like, like the Conjuring franchise and stuff like that, where uh, the first film is great and it works, but then every film after that uses the same tools and tricks every single one after it. So there's no like surprise anymore. Uh, so just trying to avoid pitfalls like that for me is really important. 
Yeah, I, like again with the um, the idea of of cosmic horror being used, like the, something as big as cosmic horror being as being used for something like um, an allegory for family. I think if you if you like you know invest the the usage of horror in a in an intentional way, and it like that would that would pertain to like you know something more human and more real and relatable. I feel like maybe what makes that scary is usually the the relatability, like, you know, subconsciously. I feel like in, in Black Stars Above, um, some of the some of the scenes that that affected me were had to do with like the main character interacting with her family or or, you know, other other characters, just like in the context of of where they are and in the context of the mood of the book and everything. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I forgot what else I was going to say. I was, like, <laughs> making up, I was making up my answer as you were talking. So we all do. The uh, <laughs> the only other thing I'd like to, to bring up in relation to this is uh, Thomas Ligotti is like is one of my favorite writers, and and he was a big influence on Black Stars Above, and and he talks about horror and the way he creates it as just this idea of people know what the norm is, and you set up the norm in your book. And then when you bring something in that's outside the normal and it doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be a monster. It's as simple as like, you know, going to a new job where everyone knows the boss doesn't leave the office and they're just like this silhouette in their office. Like that's horror. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be anything crazier than that. And that's often yeah. more unsettling than when you like take a 10 steps above that. Mm-hmm. I just remembered what I was going to say. <laughs> I just thought... Um, I thought it was worth mentioning um, what also makes, I guess, like, you know, for example, in Black Stars Above, something that makes horror effective is, um, is like the the lens that in which you are viewing it from. Mm-hmm. I think the main character of Black Stars, her name is Eulalie. Um, she's written in such a way that her like her intelligence and her um, her her level headedness and her 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 wit. Um, and her physical, her physical and mental strength, all of that is is written. It's written for her because that was that's like the life that she was bred into, and um, all of her, all of those qualities that she has is very primal and inherent. So when she reacts to these moments of horror, um, she understands them. She understands the stakes in in their entirety. So you know the moments w- where you do see her show fear and anxiety it feels all the more real so i feel like that that's that i just feel like that's also you know important in the scope yeah, of horror in general absolutely. Mm, having yeah. having like a relatable or not a not a relatable but just a just a realist a realistic perspective and, and i think that goes back to this idea of like part of the reason I, I wanted to tell a lovecraftian story quote unquote is you know all of his characters were these like super academic white dudes yeah and (laughs) telling lovecraftian story through the lens of um an indigenous uh young woman is like they would obviously react very differently to this kind of stuff than someone who's a scholar of of the arcane arts so (laughs) yeah yeah. that was something that was also appealing hopefully adds to the horror Mm-hmm. How was the collaborative experience for you both? Um, you know, you talked earlier about the idea of, you know, the ho- horror and being, 
you know, diving into this idea of bringing the story to it. But then so much of, of horror is, is pacing and is timing. And that a lot of that is is conveyed in the art, isn't it? So how was how is the collaborative process for you both when you were crafting this these these issues together? I think um, I think our, our love for film had a lot to do with it, if mm. not like the most to do with it. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. similar, like similar, um, not just love for film, but like, our, you know, our similar taste in movies in general. Yeah, I think collaboratively, I mean, my collaboration with Jenna has been very different than it has been with other artists. So uh-huh. not like, no, I just mean <laughs> in the sense of like, uh, like pretty much from from the moment that you started working on it jenna and i were like in contact on a daily basis like where jenna would ask me questions about the script or we would talk about the visuals and stuff like that and i'm I'm often especially on like marvel work it's just kind of like i write the script and send it in and get the art back like a month later Mm -hmm. Uh, so we were talking a lot and i think through that we found out like oh we share a lot of the same influences and a lot of that related back to movies um and so the, the collaboration has been like really rewarding in that way. And I think that's why we're so on the same page. Yeah. I would, I would call Black Stars of a pretty cinematic in a way. Yeah. It's yeah. always kind of a, it's always kind of a touchy subject to compare film to comics. Um, but I mean, I can't help it. You know, <laughs> I can't help but apply like the, the like, you know, marginal common idea of pacing when it comes to, mm-hmm constructing comics and or constructing a film yeah i think especially with horror that's true as well though because as you say like pacing is such an important part of of building tension and even if you're not out to scare you're about you're out to evoke emotion aren't you and evoke this um you know the these feelings of of tension and perhaps unease and and questions that you perhaps don't want to know the answer to um and that's and you know being influenced by by horror movies and and movies that explore those themes is inevitable i think isn't it when you when you're designing something like this yeah and i think it's i think that the taboo of like saying your comic is influenced by cinema is like it's there because it is a mistake to to take something that should be a film and make it into a comic like that's when it becomes a problem but like black stars above was always meant to be a comic I mean, when you see the pages, it's like you couldn't film this. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, at the same time, I think bringing these these very cinematic influences to it, they, they really you can feel it. Like we, one of the first things Jenna and I talked about was that it we wanted to feel like a western, and this you know once you're outside, you feel the, the like almost like the 70 millimeter like wide screen um, feeling of nature, so you can get that that feeling of the sublime. Um, and talking th- about things like in cinematic terms like that was very helpful for us. Mm. Were there any specific influences that you that you both drew from? Uh, movie wise? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, movie wise uh, specifically. But, you know, we, I remember you in the emails, Jenna, you were talking about the idea of how important it is to uh, broaden your kind of influential horizons rather than just focusing on influences within the same medium but talking about things like a lot as you say like movies yeah yeah um I kind of have a weird like (laughs) I have like a weird uh personal philosophy with that um I think I think I I'm more I'm I'm like very very influenced by movies and I always have been I've always I've always drawn comics too 
I've always read comics, like, you know, admittedly, not as much as I should, like, like, I fully admit that, um, but, but, like, I, I would say that at, at times I am more, I am more influenced by, by film, but the, the, the language that I, I resonate the most with, and that I, like, instinctively um, am drawn to is comics, and, like, I, I see, I see comics mostly as um, just as like this this language that I'm I'm cho- I'm choosing to to tell my stories through. I'm inspired by comics in that like you know obviously like I have to understand the language and I have to understand um, the importance of you know design and and pacing and layout and stuff. I think I'm just more I'm more in, I'm more inspired by imagery that comes from film. So uh yeah I I I drew a lot of inspiration from from movies like like The Good the Bad and the Ugly almost mm-hmm. which is a weird which is a weird movie to be inspired by for this yeah. <laughs> because it's like the opposite <laughs> geography <laughs> but, um I think like the language of the language that this story wants to be told in um is like it's asking for a lot of real estate, like a lot of visual real estate. And, um, you know, my, my instinct to draw from is, is stuff like, you know, Sergio Leone and, and just those like, those like sweeping epic films from the like CinemaScope sixties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I also, um, was inspired by a lot of Ansel Adams, the okay. photographer. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, I think it's like, it's I you know I'd be crazy not to not to reference like actual you know artistic photos of nature and you know the wilderness and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I just think um yeah when I said it, like it's it's important for people to tap into other other mediums of inspiration. I meant that because sometimes like comics like if someone if if someone wants to draw comics it's because they they want to tell a story in a certain way, but um one shouldn't really be confined to the resources they have. If like, you know, if their imagery, you know, calls for something with like more movement or more mood or something, or just like other senses, like, you know, sound can, can mm-hmm. influence you too in, in weird ways. And even, you know, like I said, like photography too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. What about you, Lonnie, when you were, when you were putting the script together? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very similar to Jenna in that like cinema is, is sort of like it's such a big part of my life, mm-hmm. and so like that's what I sort of gravitate towards often. Um, and then yeah, comics is like a medium I love that I, I get to tell stories in. Um, so in, in terms of like cinematic influences, there's a lot of Ingmar Bergman in in the like family drama aspects of the script. Uh, there's the revenant was a, a like a pretty big touch point um i'll say the road but it's really cormac mccarthy's literature more so than the, the film mm. um, and then this this genre of folk horror that like <laughs> jenna i didn't jenna and i didn't even know like folk horror was a term <laughs> until we <laughs> did summer a couple months ago yeah. oh yeah yeah and then uh, we went to see it at the alamo and there was this like uh so like before the movie they play they like give a like a presentation sort of thing about what folk horror was and everything they were saying we were like shit this is <laughs> <boxers above." laughs> 
but the, the movies in that that influenced me before all this was like quite on was was a pretty big influence there's like images in black stars above that are like sort of straight ripped out of quite on yeah um, yeah and then the witch was like a huge influence on us in terms of that like period period horror um, yeah. aspects of it and then david lynch is like always someone i reference mm-hmm. yeah and we um and even like um just like basic cinematography or lighting references from um like the night of the hunter yeah i mean it, it's a lot of that like folk horror that you, you're talking about because it's not really a term i'm familiar with either but you know think, thinking about movies like midsummer and the witch and things like that and and i can see the connection between that and something like the good the bad and the ugly or night of the hunter because there is a a kind of a quietness to those to those to the aesthetic of, of those movies there is like a especially with the good bad and the ugly it's it's very desolate very um the landscape is important isn't it the landscape plays <laughs> such a serious such a such a big part of of that movie and that sounds like something that went into black stars above as well as this not just the period but the actual the landscape and the setting for the for the for the story yeah and the um just the amount of space that that is used in, in both of those movies like spaghetti westerns um are always so interesting because the there's like there's so much space there's so much real estate there's so much openness but often the cinematography is very like tight on on people's faces and yeah. and there's weird like weird layerings of bodies mm. in like weird um distances and stuff so you get like a you get this like a real tangible um uh feeling of the of the space and the and the land in those kinds of movies yeah it's the the inhabiting of the space by the character and how that that space influences them in their mental state and that's something like we talked about very early on mm-hmm. um, and i'm like i'm a i graduated from university with a degree in philosophy and english literature so i'm like a just the worst for this <laughs> but like something i really gravitated towards was like the the notion of the sublime and this idea of like nature as simultaneous terror and awe Mm. and and that's like a a really important thing that we wanted to capture in this was uh, as jenna said before it's like you know nature can be beautiful but it's also like harboring horrible things that can kill you like very easily Uh, so that contrast and not just in nature but also bringing that to the cosmic horror elements as well yeah Yeah. expanding it outward yeah it can be a real abstraction of of the individual too. Mm. Every it, it could like strip strip a story of its like you know cultural implications or any kind of you know cultural partitions that might define the story or the characters in other ways. But if you just stick them in the middle of of the woods or the desert or wherever, then you can you can like tell the story exactly for what they are. Mm. Yeah, there's something kind of instinctual and primal about that setting, isn't there? About the um, the unknown terror, not outsiders, but also within as well, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it looks brilliant. I mean, I've seen some of the preview pages. Um, it looks excellent. It sounds like it's you've you've both done a fantastic job in capturing exactly what you're what you're going for with you know you when you talk about your influences and what you what you're trying to set out to achieve um so that's black stars above that comes out in november uh, from vault comics 
And um, yeah, so let's talk about some of your um, comics that uh, that are significant to you as well. So, um, Lonnie, shall we start with you? What um, what book have you brought onto the show today? Uh, yeah, I brought Providence by Alan Moore and Jason Burroughs. And why was this one important to you? Um, I actually only read it. Um, I I was reading it when the single issues came out, uh, but because the book is so dense, um, with like the for the listeners who don't know, every uh, chapter of Providence ends with like ten to twenty pages of of prose journal entries, mm. and if you're not if you're trying to read that on a monthly basis, you just forget. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget what Spider-Man's been up to, let alone 10 or 20 pages of prose. Right. And so I read the first four issues uh, when it was coming out and I loved it. But I was like, I need to experience this as a whole. So just recently I, I read the whole thing and it um, yeah, it really blew me away. It's like one of Alan Moore's books that feel like people don't talk about very often. Um, but after reading it, I'm like pretty confident in saying it's like as good as Watchmen. Um, mm. And I say this as someone who like holds Watchmen on a like a disgusting pedestal (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i mean when you when we were emailed about it like i i I mentioned to you that this is the first time that someone's brought alan moore onto the show or alan moore's work um and i that surprised me because when i first started this i imagined that you know alan moore is an influential creator you know obviously um but i kind of assumed that that would be um someone would have bought it on sooner than this but uh, and then you you know you told me that you're you're one of those Alan Moore fans. <laughs> That's just like, right, okay, okay. Yeah, it's like, I'm embarrassed about it because it's so cliche. But um, I, I sincerely believe that he's he's the best comic book writer that there's ever been. Um, not including like and stuff, but like just as a, as a writer of the medium. He's just very yeah. Um, sorry, what was your question? Uh, so, um, I said, look, what is it about him that uh, that resonates with you the most? Alan Moore has a a, a grasp of the medium uh, in ways to tell stories in the medium, in ways to manipulate readers, and a, 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 an incredible understanding that the comics is the marriage of word and image. And I don't think anyone quite understands it the way he does, uh, to the point where every issue of providence the title comes up on the third page of each issue i think and every title is like an answer to a question that somebody asked on the page previous but it's also the title of a lovecraft story and so just the way that his texts work um structurally within themselves while also referencing the things that are influencing him it's uh it's unprecedented and and nobody uh, nobody puts that much craft into their work and is able to pull that off like he is. And it's the same deal with Watchmen, right? The, yeah. the intertextuality of it in the meta text is, yeah, just nobody else can pull that off. Yeah, and 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 no other medium can can pull it off either. Really, you know, he's picked, as you say, he's picked the perfect platform in which to to tell these stories, and that's that's probably why. I mean, for me anyway, you might you might feel differently, but I feel like. It's, converting his stories into other media like so the Watchmen movie and the the tv show that's coming out do, will are unable to capture exactly what it is yes. about uh, you know Watchmen specifically I mean I I admit that I'm I'm one of those you know 
casual Alan Moore fans that has only kind of read things like Watchmen and his DC work and uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and a few kind of a bit of top 10, bit of Supreme, things like that. So I I wasn't familiar with Providence when I when I sat down with it. Um, and I've only been able to read the first couple of issues, but um, it's already I mean, when I when I did a bit of research into it, I saw a few people saying this is he does for kind of Lovecraft and horror fiction and and the this uh, this genre what the Providence does for that what Watchmen did for superheroes um, yeah and I can I can totally see that uh, even reading a few of these early issues yeah and it's it, the last couple issues of that series are like I was uh, I was already in love with it and in the last two issues I was just like how does Alan Moore pull this off like I don't <laughs> stand yeah. uh, because without spoiling anything it's um it's similar to to from hell in the sense that he's using this vaguely historical account to uh then use as a launch pad to discuss why things are the way they are in the present and the ability to have an understanding of history and history of horror and lovecraft and then to to be able to see those through lines all the way to the present day is uh it's an artist working on another level you know what i mean it's it's Mm. like uh it's the kind of stuff i read that i'm like i could i would never even think about that let alone be able to communicate that clearly and effectively in a 12 issue series it's it's difficult isn't it because as as you said like you're you're almost embarrassed to say how much you love alan moore which is you know you, you shouldn't be at all like it's it's you know alan moore as you say is is completely influential on a completely different level to to most of other peers um in the in the in the craft but i can understand also why you why you say that as well because i feel as though the the conversation around alan moore has gone full circle multiple times hasn't it you know obviously there was the love for watchman when it came out then there's the inevitable kind of pushback against the you know the the grim and gritty you know perceived like influences that uh you know the way that comics cha- the superhero comics changed after after watchman came out and the kind of perhaps negative lessons that they took away from Watchmen but um but I also feel that it's coming back around again to the idea that people shouldn't really be ashamed almost to to say how influential Alan Moore is it's almost he's he, he's kind of mainstream he was went too mainstream but then he's gone back again does that make sense yeah yeah it's funny you bring that up because I was actually going to say like I want to rescind my my embarrassment because <laughs> I don't know, like fuck that. I love Alan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, like that's a good T-shirt. Yeah, and it's just like I don't want to feel. I shouldn't feel ashamed of that because, I, like, I sincerely believe he's he's the best. And yeah. and I, I think yeah, there, you're right. There was this wave of sort of like pushback against it. I remember like this was a few months ago. I tortured myself by going on a forum of people who were like saying Watchmen isn't that great, <laughs> and like just reading the comments of it, I was like oh this is like this sounds super pretentious but like whatever the it's like these people just didn't understand the book and maybe that's because they they haven't had the opportunities to like study comics in the way I have or they haven't been exposed to as many of them but I believe with a lot of Alan Moore stuff is like you kind of have to have a prerequisite knowledge of comics or uh, like with Watchmen superhero comics sometimes or like if you don't read Lovecraft, Providence is probably going to be very difficult for you to understand. 
uh, at least in its entirety. Is that something that you love about it, though? Is that, you know, because it, I think it's safe to say that Alan Moore is, is fiercely independent in his own, yes. in his own, the way that he creates work. He doesn't create for the mainstream. He doesn't create for anyone but himself, really. Um, and that is something that sets him out from the others. That's what sets, you know, most geniuses out from, from anyone else is this idea of being staunchly, um, you know, stubbornly themselves when it comes to their own work. Uh, is that something that appeals to you as a, a fellow creator? Like a hundred percent. I think mm. like anyone who knows me and, and knows how I write would say that I'm like really stubborn. <laughs> um, is that true, Jenna? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And always trying to, um, yeah, like I don't, I don't want to tell stories that don't feel like me or that, that, that I'm not interested in. And it's actually like kind of ironic and like kind of ridiculous. But um, part of the reason I feel this way is, yeah, because of Alan Moore, and there, there was a piece of uh, writing advice that he gave once that is like the piece of advice that has stuck with me through anything uh, is he said, if you don't love it, why should anyone else? Mm. And that really resonates with me because I think a lot of people tell comics or write comics or not just comics, but movies or whatever, and they're making it for someone else, uh, making it for an audience or for the studio or whatever. But really all that matters is like your instincts and what kind of stories you want to see. And you should love like not just the book, but like it goes down to like the lines of dialogue for me where if my instinct tells me a line of dialogue isn't working, if I don't love a single line of dialogue, then I should change it. Mm. And everything should be scrutinized to that level of, of getting it to a point where you, you love it wholly. And for some people, they there is like a an almost self-deprecating barrier that prevents some people from doing that about their own work, isn't there really? That, um, you know, there's perceived arrogance of just being able to turn around and admit that you love your own work. But why should they? Why, why should there be that? You know, you should be able to, as you say, if you if you don't love it, then how you know, how can you expect anyone else to? Exactly. And, and I'm not saying this in a way that, like, I think my work is amazing. But I, like, regardless of the actual quality of the work that I'm putting out, it it appeals to me um, more so than me thinking my work is brilliant. Like that's obviously pretentious. Uh, <laughs> and I certainly don't feel that way about my work. Uh, but yeah, it's about do you love the images you're putting out? Do, does it speak to you? Um, and and is it honest to who you are? Jenna, is this uh, is this a book that you've uh, you've read? Are you are you familiar with Providence? I haven't read through it. Um, I've only seen um, a couple of pages here and there, mm. but um, I'm like, again, like I, I didn't really read the pages that I saw either, but I was like, I was captivated by the artwork alone. Mm. Like some of the, I forget what exactly happens, but some of the pages like have a very like kind of, I don't know, homely and domestic feeling to them, like just in like a, a familiar setting. And then, just like just like a a mix of like of this of this crazy like um I don't know how to describe it it's like a weird mix of the artist using like this weird design but also using like the the like tangible context of the environment to create this weird mm. marriage of of like indiscernible imagery <laughs> yeah of like it's like like there, like some something happens like in that universe that that makes sense or like or doesn't it just like it happens in the universe but it's also supposed to be 
it's supposed to be like a design element of the of the actual artwork and the actual mm-hmm. uh, layout of the page. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely I appreciate the book on that level. And like eventually I'm going to have to read it like just <laughs> I'm probably, like I'll probably be forced to read it like yeah. eventually. <laughs> I sent uh, I texted Jenna a page from Providence when I was reading it, and uh, it's a scene where this like old woman is like breastfeeding this oh my god baby <laughs> man's head yeah. And Jenna was just like, don't text me this anymore. Like this is scaring me. And it's just like one page from it. But but it's true because the book is like like Jason Burroughs work on it. And because Alan Alan Moore knows how to like make comics scary combined with Jason's like really detailed work and like his his yeah, his like uncanny layouts. It, it is scary. Like it's one of the, the, the few horror books that are comics that I've read that like legitimately scared me. Yeah. I suppose it goes back to what you were saying before about the idea of horror being something that something is there that shouldn't be there or something that is isn't there that should be you know it's just this kind of um and and that's and that's what you were saying Jen about the idea of Jason Burroughs creates this world so um so beautifully and he he establishes these kind of um these uh, visual rules you know subconsciously that you that you start to slip into you know he's very he normalizes the the environment it's a very realistic setting but then when these unnerving uh, instances start to kind of creep into the sides of the of the pages like the the first issue uh, the uh, main character Robert Black goes to visit um, a uh, an author uh, Dr. Alvarez and there's just something well there, there's a lot of like physically unsettling things about it but there's just something so unsettling about how Jason Burroughs uh like depicts this this man stood there like and, and it's almost like you you know that he's not blinking because comic characters don't blink but you you also know that he's not blinking the entire time and you kind of got to the end of it it's like yeah that man didn't blink once <laughs> even though you know he physically can't in a comic and i think something that that's brilliant about the book is the, the first half of it is largely those just sort of strange interactions that aren't um, overtly horrific. Uh, but then the the mystery as it unravels, it starts to color those those absurd experiences. And once you realize what's the like greater plot of what's going on underneath everything, those scenes where it's yeah, the guy who seems like he's just weird and unblinking, you know, something is going on. They take on this like whole other level of of uh, terror that that wasn't there previously yeah yeah and jenna what how do you feel about alan moore generally are you are you a fan of some of his other work yeah yeah um i think i'm 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 one of those people that lonnie would that i would drive lonnie crazy and that i don't understand what that like entirely what i'm reading but <laughs> i'm gonna like you know start arguing with him about it or anything <laughs> no that's yeah i'm not trying to i'm not trying to coax that out of you either yeah i mean well i i mean now that i know it create such a rise out of him so easily I could use that you know, <laughs> situations. But yeah we um yeah I actually um yeah we, we like studied Alan Moore in, in school and stuff just on like just just by being shown his um the notes he gave uh he gives his artists on like on the scripts and stuff just like just like this indiscernible block of of scribbling that covers the entire page of like of edits and stuff like that alone we would just see that we'd be mesmerized and also horrified of like yeah. is this how is this how it's like to write or to drop writers <laughs> or yeah yeah 
my script. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen some of those pages where it is it's it's all so intense, isn't it? <laughs> really to see yeah. those pages, yeah. Kind of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Plus those... like no paragraph <laughs> yeah. like four pages. <laughs> um but yeah, so is this um for you, Lonnie, is this uh one of his definitive works? Is this something that just resonated with you personally, or is this something that you think is kind of the at the at the top of Alan Moore's um, you know, like works, basically. Yeah, but I say that about every Alan Moore book I read. <laughs> <laughs> you get to the end, oh, no, this is the best one. Oh, no, wait, this is the best one. Um, like, I, I say that, like, kind of as a joke, but also not. <laughs> I, I do find it strange, like, because I was looking into this, and there's there's a couple of fantastic websites, one that does a, um, a full annotations on Providence, which I think I'm going to read alongside when I actually read the book itself. Um, but it surprises me that there are, isn't more conversation about something like Providence, because even reading the first few issues, I can see the the amount of craft and the density of ideas in just the first few issues alone is is worth thousands of words of, of, of analysis. And yet I don't seem to see that as much for Alan Moore anymore um yeah I, I I agree I wish there was and like from the interviews I've read with him about Providence is like the amount of work nobody puts as much research into their work as he does and it's to the point where he was reading uh, because it's like historical uh and he, it's like all set around like actual events he would he would find out uh what the moon cycle was on the dates that the of certain stories so that he made sure Jason Burroughs would have like the right uh like phase of the moon in the sky for that date which is like no one reading that is ever going to yeah. care or like look into that yeah. but that care and detail is something that uh you feel uh regardless of whether or not you know every exact detail yeah yeah and is that um is that again that goes back to that kind of idea of being absolutely terrifying for an artist I imagine Jenna yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it is terrifying, but um, it also has a fulfilling quality to it too. Mm. Like having like that that level of of investment, um, you know, as as crazy as, or like weird that that could be that could sound to anybody else. Um, I think that level of of investment is a, if anything, it's a good sign of the of the quality that you're working with. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's I, I think a lot of people especially casual readers of Alan Moore would potentially they because they you hear about the reactions that he's had to his his super a lot of his superhero work he he you know denounces it a lot of it really he does he's not a fan of it anymore he doesn't like what's especially doesn't like how it's been treated which is perfectly valid um but I think a lot of people then think oh he doesn't care about the the medium or he doesn't care about his work but this is the proof of the exact opposite of that isn't it really mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, I think I don't think there's a person who cares more about comics than Alan Moore. Yeah. And as yeah. you say, it's evidenced by the the, the detail of, and richness of, of the stories that he tells. Yeah, yeah, and that must be appealing to you as well as a as a fan and a creator, I imagine. Totally, yeah. I don't think there's a, a single comic book creator who's influenced me more, uh, it, both in terms of like his command over it, but also the way. The, the, like the research and the the scripting and stuff is you know uh, my scripts aren't as crazy as his but they're they're quite long 
compared to most contemporary comic book writers. Yeah, I think I think you couldn't get the level of, as I say, density of ideas and the the kind of the perfect structure that he sets out, especially in Providence, um, and and things like Watchmen as well. I don't think you could get that without that kind of level of detail um, mm-hmm. from everyone involved, really. So yeah, I imagine that um, that is you know that is must be a way that that influences you. Yeah, and, and I think that there's a, a misunderstanding of Alan Moore's scripts as like people see them as these big dense blocks of text, which they are. Um, but it, it, I think people see them as very like controlling of the artist. Um, but I forget who it was, but there was an artist who worked with Alan Moore recently on Twitter who who posted like here's a script page he sent me and like I know a lot of artists don't like long scripts, but with Alan it was different because it was always about the page layout and ideas for the pages and how they can work. It wasn't just like, you got to put this specific cup in this background and this painting, whatever, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. super details. It was him talking about the medium and, and trying to work with the artist to get the best product possible. And they said, like, if you strayed from Alan's ideas that he was fine with it, but it just so happened that his ideas were usually the best ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, brilliant. Yeah, I, I think it's um, yeah, as I say, I think it's a fascinating piece of work, and I think it's 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 definitely deserves the um and the like kind of deep analysis that you you'd almost need to do in order to in order to fully understand it. And I think it it's deserving of that, isn't it? Yeah, maybe maybe I should do that. Be- <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's move on to yours then, Jenna. What have you um, what are you brought to talk about? I brought uh, Uzumaki by Junji Ito. Again, this uh, before we talked, before we sat down to record, um, we talked about the fact that I'm sat alone in the dark at uh, you know gone midnight now, <laughs> and we're about to talk about Uzumaki. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, that's fine. I, I absolutely love it. Um, but um, but tell me, what do you love about it? Um, well, I'll say I'll say right off the bat that um, I can't handle Junji Ito. Like I can't. <laughs> like I I often um can't really finish his books literally because they're too scary for me and that's not an exaggeration i get i get a i get a fight or flight response um when i see his comics even if it's just like um just like looking up his his name in google in the image search results <laughs> like if i scroll if i scroll to if i scroll through the images too, for too long then i'll get like I'll get like a twist in my gut and I'll have to like walk away from my computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I remember um when when Lonnie and I were at TCAF, um John Gita was a he 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 did a couple of events there and um when we were in line for the signing, um like everybody everybody was sitting down with with their with their John Gito books, just kind of like reading them. And I was like, I can't like how are these people like how are you how are you just sitting there? <laughs> And like just, reading them like it's nothing. <laughs> yeah, like just casually reading yeah. them like like they're like it's normal. Yeah, yeah. Like I've I've known I've had Junji Ito in my life for like um I don't know, like fifteen years or whatever. And like I s I'm I've never I'm still just as scared of him. Maybe a little less. But like I'm still I'm <laughs> yeah. still really scared of him, like as I I've always been. Yeah, so I I'll preface by saying like I kind of have a weird relationship with horror 
in that like I've I've always been a really scared person. Like I was I was an extremely scared child. Um, I had a lot of anxiety. Like literally everything scared me down to like you know commercials on TV and stuff. <laughs> like I remember I couldn't um, I I couldn't go into the VHS store after I like accidentally wandered into the horror section and yeah, I saw yeah. the cover for like Hellraiser and Pride of Chucky and stuff. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I like, you know, I was I was very, very scared of everything. And um, you know, I still I still am like very reactive to horror. Um and I think in that sense, uh in a very in a very weird way, um I'm kind of like I've I've kind of been held captive by all of that um all of that anxiety and all of that fear um and in a way that kind of made me understand horror the most like I'm I'm so I eventually became so drawn to horror just because like I was like in it <laughs> in a way like I was I kind of lived with it and I and I was making up my own the own my own horror in my head like you know, before I before I started doing it intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> so I think um, I think when I when I discovered Junji Ito, I was immediately enraptured by his artwork. I was immediately scared by his artwork. Mm. Like I was viscerally scared. Yeah. And I think because because I have that that reactiveness to to hor- like the horror genre in general this was just like such a big thing that it like it just like in, it like embedded itself in my mind and um yeah I, I like I remember I couldn't stop thinking about it. I think I just saw like a page from Uzumaki I think I saw the the eyeball page yeah yeah like someone someone just like showed it to me in school one time and it that's all it took for this like all this shit to happen <laughs> <laughs> this is twice now i've heard stories of people sending you just out of context images of horror from comics and it's totally yeah. fucking you up <laughs> yeah yeah it's like a weird gravitational pull or something that I have, yeah. like yeah. all the fear in my life <laughs> you send it some kind of message out into the world that yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is something that you want yeah yeah i don't know how i can stop that like <laughs> There's a way. I'm never gonna stop. I guess it's worked <laughs> no. for me. It's it's worked this far. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I uh, I was I was scared. I was drawn to Junji Ito in such a way that I was like more scared of it than I than I had been anything else before. So Uzumaki was always kind of a book that that I like you know had in my mind. Like it it was just something that I knew about um before I really seriously started um getting into comics like as a serious profession so once I um once I started developing my own style I found that I was drawn to more classical styles like um maybe like Franklin Booth or you know Gibson and you know just like really classic old um draftsmen Mm. kind of that kind of evolved into uh discovering people like Mobius and uh Bernie Wrightson like like a lot of just a lot of like you know the classic dudes and i think i i mean i was more i was more drawn to the um the quality of their line than than anything else like than the than the actual stories themselves like i obviously love the stories and i love reading all those guys um i just like i can just like sit on their pages for you know for hours just looking at the artwork alone yeah 
so I was just I was just very naturally um, attracted to developing a, a hatching style, like a very dense, um, scribbly hatching style. And then once I started tried to like expose myself more to different comics, I realized I loved Junji Ito. Like I loved um, I loved looking at his artwork. Mm. And I, but the thing is, is that I couldn't, like, I literally, like, I, I was still, I was still too scared. I just loved, like, I loved the, um, the idea of him sculpting his drawings through his, through his line and through his hatching. I love, like, I love the quality there, there's like a tactile, like tangible kind of rough and doughy quality to all of his like really, um, rendered, uh, images that's like that that's a that's a technical aspect to his drawing that's so perfect and instinctive for the kind of imagery he wants to put across like he he has like the the headspace and the the technical um prowess to to choose to draw a person twisted in a spiral like you know like in a like you know what is, is he's in like a fucking basket well. or something yeah well yeah, yeah. yeah like he he chooses to draw that out of like this audacity of you know his his technical design quality of his drawing and i mean that's like that's such a that's such a definitive aspect of why he's so scary too because like his it's not just that like he's drawing people twisted up in spirals it's that he he can make it like he can sculpt it in such a way where you you really like feel it and you understand the volume and the the like compactness and the just the very visceral um tangible quality mm-hmm. to all of his work and so i um am i'm re- i'm very attracted to the the feeling of sculpting with with my drawing that's why that's why I love artists like Bernie Wrightson too. He's him and Junji Ito are my two. Those those are probably the two big, big guys that I'm that I'm most influenced by stylistically. Yeah. Bernie Wrightson, he um, you know, he's his his work is a little cleaner. Um, but he still it just looks like it almost look his art almost looks like etchings, you know. Yeah. Or it like, is, yeah. Uh, like old prints or something. It looks like he's literally like carving into the paper with his ink. I had I had trouble developing that style earlier on because often that that avenue is it, it doesn't it's not very viable for comics if it takes a long time or if it's just very um it's very hard on your body. I mean like part of the part of the beauty of the comic language is that you can say as much as you want in as few lines as possible and the uh, the efficiency that comic allows and the the ability to abstract your people and your objects and your environment that that you know that's that's an aspect of the storytelling too that that one can um master i'm just i just kind of i resonate more with the the more draftsman like you know uh hatchy kind of style and i think that's because i mean one it's it's beautiful obviously and um that kind of style can put across uh, body horror or like you know yeah you know, ito-esque horror um but i also i think i i find the process very therapeutic and um the time the amount of time it takes to, for me to draw um and like you know draw things and, sh- and, and like draw the way i want <laughs> um mm. 
regardless of how um, how time consuming that is and how uh, troubling that could be on a on a deadline. Um, <laughs> you know, that the just the 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 like meditation and the um, uh, what's the word? The, the the catharsis of um of just like carving and sculpting and um deconstructing and reconstructing and building on something to create this this imagery i just find that like you know i find that very fulfilling as an artist i can't i don't really um i don't really draw in such a way that it's like i just like put it on the paper and i kind of like you know it's like you know action inspired like I don't know, just very like bold and and like has to be on there and has to go and has to be quick. I just like, you know, that's that's one reason why I love comics too. Yeah. Is because it requires that time. I think um I think the idea of of sculpting and building my drawing, like just the just the whole idea of sculpting, the like the the meditative quality of that. I think that's also why um I'm drawn to the comic language as a craft too. Mm. I'm just, I, I resonate with the process of, of building a comic and, um, and writing a comic too. Um, it takes like, you know, it, it takes, it takes a lot of um, maybe trial and error isn't the right word, but just a lot of like, you know, call and response of, of different ideas and different, mm. different mm-hmm. things um, in order to get exactly what you want to put across. I really value the idea of of a uh, repetition and drawing things as many times as it needs to be drawn in order to know exactly how it needs to look. Mm-hmm. And I just love the uh, the feeling of sculpting a page in like its very rudimentary form and just like layering as much as I need to uh, tighten the the whole layout and the you know the flow one panel to the other and you know the the relation of page one and page two and you know page three and 50 or whatever you know like that's not you know that's that's stretching it but like I still like that that uh that build up um I find that all very very fulfilling and very um you know for how stressful it is I I still find it very therapeutic (laughs) yeah yeah, the idea of one one piece working on a piece individually, but then also feeding it into a, a larger sequential narrative and seeing how it all comes together. Yeah, yeah, and that that takes like, I mean, I guess like there's artists out there who could just there's like some John Hughes esque comic people who could just like do that in a weekend, mm-hmm. but like you know, I think the way one masters the comic language, at least maybe on like a stylistic level. In, in like in the level of how I said um, saying as much as you can in as few lines as possible that like getting to that level takes can take you know a lifetime it takes like you know as much repetition as it needs so even if something even if you want to make something like you know instinctive and quick and um, in a timely manner I feel like just like the the definition of of comics and, and the comic language is is that like is that build up and that understanding and taking taking the time it needs to to be understood and I think that's that's probably also why I love film too because I love like I love the 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 build up of film and like the the time it takes and like the the handmade quality you can get with some films like the the films that the movies that changed my life were the Evil Dead series 
Mm-hmm. Um, those those movies just feel the movies just feel like very handmade and like uh, just like rough and like you know gritty and and like uh, you know malleable and gross. Yeah, like raw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think um, I think someone like Junji Ito is is like like I would I would naturally be be drawn to someone like that. The level in which he he renders his imagery with such care but with such intention in the context of horror is uh it's very it's i mean it's so inspiring and it's like it's fulfilling to read when like when i can read it (laughs) without (laughs) the book yeah and so uzumaki is kind of like i mean i think that's like it that's everyone's definitive or most people's definitive junji ito book Mm -hmm. um i think uh i think that book like is important to me Because it like it stayed with me in in like you know my my like personal kind of way and how it like it traumatized me <laughs> that's why it stayed <laughs> with me I do I do I do just like I'm attracted to Junji Ito and I'm inspired by him very much on a on a technical basis as a as a draftsman um, he's like he's probably my my biggest stylistic influence yeah I mean the fact that he he can evoke such feelings such a visceral like physical reaction from you i can understand why that is that's as equally fascinating as it is like a deterrent you know like i can yeah, see exactly. why that continually you know as as someone you know i, I mean i i can't draw for anything but like as as just a, a reader I'm, I'm fascinated by how he's able to do that to me as a as a reader but for you as you know someone who who does create art and as someone who does follow the technical um the technical skill behind it i can see how fascinating that would be as well yeah yeah um i think he i think he he resonates with so many people on that level too Mm. like he he's able to i mean maybe like whether or not people are aware of it just the the lengths he he goes to in like choosing to render certain things like that's a very it's like it's completely it's all like intention like he doesn't have to to render he doesn't have to draw the way he draws <laughs> you know he he just he chooses to go to to have that audacity you know and that i mean i like i think that is a uh, people like people people must be attracted to that whether they're aware of it or not it's not i mean there's not there's not many people uh, artists out there like him i mean there's plenty of other like the like guru artists like japanese artists who who are as like viscerally upsetting as him Mm. but his like his level of intention probably makes him noteworthy for that reason because like because he chooses to to depict his horror in this like in this very specific way yeah i think audacity is such a, a is a great word for it because the just the 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 sheer goal to to uh, to create a book about spirals and have it have such an absurd idea so fully realized and so fully explored through every different angle as you read through the book it's there's not a a, a type of spiral that isn't left completely ruined for you <laughs> in your life <laughs> and it's so fascinating to see him kind of attack it from every different angle and it's so fully commit to this idea <laughs> of something so unassuming when you first start it and and a lot of his work is 
to describe like we talked about the elevator pitch earlier to describe the elevator pitch to someone is almost to it's almost like you're creating something to make them laugh you know like (laughs) this whole town is is obsessed with spirals and it leads to something really horrific oh yeah okay sure and then like oh there's like there's a mountain with with holes in it that like fits people perfectly and they all can't help but go in like what sure okay that sounds great but then you read it and it is so as you say the audacity of this guy to commit so fully to something so absurd and to make it so viscerally like so viscerally engaging and engrossing <laughs> gross <laughs> it's, it's like so is 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 wonderful how he manages to do it yeah yeah. yeah 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 um yeah i i, I admire um i admire that whole like that whole class of of, of a horror manga artist like um you know Sahiro Maro and um uh Umezu and Shintaro Kago like all of those those like you know disgusting just like horrific <laughs> just like the just the most horrific shit you could possibly see I I like you know I can't I have a lot of trouble reading all of those artists I love like I love Maro he's he's like he's so good he's so beautiful like his his drawing is beautiful and it's like absolutely horrific <laughs> i i just i've always admired those those types of artists um who have that audacity and they um they 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 have this intention of uh of of going of having such extreme transgression probably like you know i'm assuming at least i hope so like for the sake of for the sake of going those lengths so that others like have that have that allowance to to push beyond um convention and mm-hmm. uh and transcend suppression like artistic suppression that that may be you know of the times mm-hmm. i feel like those those artists um maybe like with japanese uh artists in general it's like it's the the culture is, is so regimented and um you know, it's it's like you know, there's a lot you know, there's a lot of history behind it and stuff. But um, I feel like they have the most, the biggest reason and the mo- the biggest uh, sense of intention to do what they do. Mm. And so, um, like, I mean, obviously, it could be very offensive to people. And um, you know, I'm not I'm not a fan of the like really dark stuff, like the you know, the offensive stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but but again, it's like it's the audacity that that I admire that kind of like that kind of like punk philosophy of just like battling regimented times um i don't think that's limited to to those kind of artists like i I admire that in any kind of filmmaker or artist or writer whoever that that does that no matter how like you know disgusting and and upsetting it may be yeah just don't be too offensive that's all you know (laughs) yeah yeah having a having a, a woman's face turn into a spiral and cave in on itself is completely yeah, fine yeah. but you know just don't cross yeah. the line <laughs> <laughs> um lonnie what's your relationship with um Junji Ito? oh yeah i'm also a huge fan um <clears throat> to the uh <clears throat> i mean I, I don't think his work has influenced me nearly as much as it has jenna but there are <laughs> This, yeah, this idea of transgression is something that appeals to me uh, in, in all mediums, and that's what what appeals to me about Chenji Ito's work, because uh, as you were saying before, it has this absurd quality to it, and 
he's very inspired by like his the dreams he has mm-hmm. um and he doesn't care about like whether or not it makes sense or whether or not the the narrative is like structured well or anything it's just he's he's coming at all of this stuff from a, a very pure place uh, of just what's authentic to him and because it's this sort of almost like innocent naive thing where it's like well, well if I find it off-putting or scary then like someone else is going to find it off-putting and scary he just happens to have like a really fucked up brain that like conjures <laughs> these images for him yeah but he like he's not the kind of guy who from from seeing him talk he's not the kind of guy who's sitting there being like I got to come up with a really crazy image and yeah figure out like something new to outdo myself last time it's just kind of the way he's wired um and yeah he has the skill to do it but is also like doesn't have any reservations about making his images like as disturbing as as they can be yeah and he's so he's so unassuming too when you hear him talk um like all of the yeah like all of the um the uh like q and a's and interviews he did at tcaf he's just very like yeah he's just very unassuming and um i don't i guess i don't think um i don't really see him as like you know he wants to be transgressive and he wants to be this like punk you know fucking dude or whatever uh it yeah it just comes from a place of honesty and um and like this like purity of expression um, and it's just like this, like, yeah, this very pure, like uninhibited, like, like instinct to, to do what he does. Yeah. And I, I think it, uh, this, there's no like, uh, quote unquote meaning to his work. Yeah. Yeah. In this yeah. Way that, um, like someone like David Lynch isn't out there being like, my film is about this, you know, it's just, yeah. these people think in a different way. And I, I, always admire those kind of storytellers because that's not the way I tell stories and I I often wish I could be that um just like instinctive and like naturally good at storytelling Mm -hmm. um but yeah that's really appealing to me that sort of like the dream logic the absurdity and just following wherever your mind takes you and I would say both of those people are like the like two masters of horror uh, but doing so in ways that no one else has done before Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in completely yeah. different ways to each other as well, really. You know, like the, yeah. as you say, there's something so deceptively simple about Ito's approach. In the, you know, he he takes something, as you say, like that's something so must be so personally horrifying to him, and just like, well, I find this horrific, so surely someone else does as well. But it's it's more than that because it's so it's it's so instinctual again, isn't it? it does go back to this kind of primal idea of of just this existential horror that he just taps into this vein but he does it in such a simple way that that is there there's there are layers to his work but there's no you know deeper subtext about you know the about like the the cultural societal implications of these things it is it is just a simple case of this is a this is a horrific existential journey i'm going to take you on yeah um i'd like to believe that his style um is uh similarly informative in that like it's it's instinctive in that he he does it because he likes it or maybe mm-hmm. he also finds it therapeutic or or whatever he, you know i i i want to i also like i probably um i think i'm realizing this now but like i think uh, i think i love uh i love his style and i love the the sculptural um aspect of his style because um because i find it therapeutic 
um, that's like as honest as I can be stylistically. I, like I wouldn't, I would never want to draw in, in a way that's like more timely or more, you know, efficient if, if I didn't like it, you know, like, you know, I, I make my, I, I like, I make my time work. Like I'm like efficient in my own way and that I can make, like, I can, I can make it work for myself, but yeah, like, I just, I like, I, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather be honest with myself and I'd rather uh, maintain that, that purity and that, um, that therapeutic uh, nature to drawing and, you know, and just like, you know, remember why, <laughs> remember why I love drawing because it's like, it's like, it's no matter how, like, you know, how much it's for like the, you know, a, a comic or a publisher, it's, it's like still, it's still entirely me and it's still like, you know, mostly for myself. So um, I can't help but think Junji Ito, like he he's so pure in in like his his storytelling and and his style because like you know because that's what he likes and that's what he stands by. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to what you said as well, Lonnie, about Alan Moore finding self fulfillment and finding that uh, idea of of loving your loving how your work resonates with you not necessarily saying your work is amazing but loving the, the or appreciating your own work um, and that sounds exactly what you know what you're trying to do with or what you are achieving uh, Jenna with your work is is the the craft that you put in the time you put in the therapy like the, the therapy you you gain from it is is a self-fulfillment that um that is is its own reward isn't it really yeah yeah um it's it's weird it's like it's a self-fulfillment but um I also kind of find like I I also kind of find solace in in it being um outside of me too Mm. like like the the thing I create is uh is something that I can like you know I could give it like a body and Mm. a face and it can be outside of me and I could like hold it in my hand and give it to people and stuff it's like its own thing it's like its own it's like the you know the the fulfillment of creation yeah, yeah. You know, in, in abuse it's like you know abuse of power as a as an artist building <laughs> <laughs> your <God> powers <laughs> yeah especially when it's so viscerally terrifying as what uh, as some of some of your art and some of ito's art it's just like i've made this i've had to see this now you exactly. have to as well yeah 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 um at least for me um being so so enraptured by the horror genre I obviously like draw from my own anxieties uh when I when I uh, express myself in like you know in the in the guise of horror imagery and stuff um so it's so it's therapeutic in a way that I'm like that I'm externalizing the stuff that I'm going through and the stuff that um I you know I always feel and again like you know with the the whole idea of horror as a as a useful tool for allegory this is just the best avenue for me to to understand all of all the things that i'm going through you know it's it's like it's something to think about it yourself and try to figure it out or like you know talk to others about it but until you give it a face and give it a body and put it in a context and have it react or um, interact with with other things and people you don't really under you, you you might understand it better if you do that and even more so if you if you put it in like a tangible object that you can throw away or you know wave around and and read and you know put it in storage and give it to other people 
yeah, I forget yeah. what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it goes back to your idea, uh, what you mentioned earlier about honesty as well. You know, I don't think there's anything more honest than being able to um, expose and confront your own anxieties. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can I relate to that too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny when you were think when you were saying that. I was like, yeah, that's totally how I feel too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I I um my work is very deliberate and very intentional with the themes I'm exploring. But even still, sometimes while I'm writing, I'm like, oh, this is why I'm writing about mm-hmm. this theme because yeah. that's a problem that I deal with, and mm-hmm. that's a something that scares me. And it's like, even if I know that going into it and like I've chosen to explore that theme, there's still ways that it comes out to, to surprise you. Yeah and, yeah. and that's really, I think, the reason why I, I write. Yeah, that's, do anything, you know? that, that's often instinctive, too. Like it's like it's like an, a human instinct of yours to to get that out of you mm-hmm. and to understand it. Yeah. And like I don't I don't think I ever get answers <laughs> many of my work but just the sheer idea of exploring it uh is uh, it's it sort of gives voice to to something that was previously silent inside you and sometimes mm-hmm. that's enough yeah yeah definitely i don't know if you saw the movie midsummer have yeah. you um, I, I have seen it yeah 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 um i remember coming out of that movie like like i was absolutely tortured throughout the whole movie I was like I was in the worst state I was so upset and so like uncomfortable throughout the whole movie in like every single possible way (laughs) (laughs) Um, until the last until the very ending and then I felt great yeah like I felt I felt like pure catharsis out of it like once I once I realized um, what the movie was trying to say even in even like even in, in its like horrific way like the ending is like you know it's horrific but like the the feel like the point that I got was like it was like you know a breath of fresh air almost it's like a release yeah it was like a release after like this like slog of yeah, just yeah. like you know Being getting held prisoner in the in the theater yeah. yeah 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 um and that's like you know that's a very like contradictive way of looking at horror I guess but I've always found I've always found that that process of it very effective for me at least um I I, kind of see horror more as like a a a way to understand all of all of my anxieties and like you know other people's anxieties and um a lot of very human elements uh and of course like you know horror is very fun and you like the I love, you know, Evil Dead and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do. I kind of see that um, with this, like, you know, movies like Hereditary and, and Midsummer and The Witch and um, even like It Follows and The Babadook and movies like that. Like, I feel like people are, at least filmmakers, are, are kind of seeing horror in that kind of way. Again. So, yeah, again. After exactly. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Being absent. Yeah, we have to get through the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the endless sequels and yeah. 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 No, I think I, I, I like weirdly you mentioned the Babadook because I was thinking about that film earlier uh, when we were talking, and that hit me in a way that I wasn't expecting it to. I the yeah. and I think the the trailers kind of led you astray as well, really, because that film turned out to be about something 
mm-hmm. much deeper and much more in a way that resonated with me in a way that I was not expecting a you know the trailer which is just like a creepy guy in a top hat that kind of stalks yeah. this yeah. stalks his mother and son like it, it it turns out to be something com- about something completely different um, yeah. Yeah. and um and yeah much like you were both saying about starting off on a project and it affecting you as you go through it in different ways that that's how that film made me feel and that's how horror should make you feel really as well isn't it yeah yeah I think um I think a movie like the Babadook uh probably it resonates more with certain people than others Mm. um because like like you said the the thing it's trying to say that you don't realize at first like the thing it's talking about is um some people will like relate to that more than others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like the same can be said about Midsummer, or, yeah. or hereditary or, or like, you know, mm-hmm. any of those movies. So if that's like, if that's the goal um, in using the horror genre, then I think that's as fulfilling as it could be. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. you know, if you can, if you can like, you know, touch upon certain things that people really, really feel and relate to on a, on a very deep spiritual level, then I think you've, you know, I think you've found great success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I feel as though I could sit and talk to you both for another two hours about, <laughs> about comics and horror, but I'm also very aware of the time as well. So um, I, I think we'll, we'll call it there. But thank you so much um, for joining me. This is um, this has been a genuinely fascinating um, look at, um, at at the at the things that I know that you're going to wind each other up about in future. <laughs> so like, <laughs> no, but just just generally the the influences that the things that have gone into your work and the things that you get out of your work as well, which is um, which has been it's been fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank thanks, you so much. Thanks yeah. a lot for talking to us, Matt. It's yeah, been great. This is awesome. Thanks once again to my guests Lonnie Nadler and Jenna Char. Their book, Black Stars Above, will be published by Vault Comics this November. That's the Issue is part of the Multiversity Comics podcast network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com or at thatstheissue.pinecast.co. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. It really helps. The show is on Twitter at That's The Issue, and I'm on there too at Matt Loon, M-A-T-T-L-U-N-E. Finally, you can contact the show via email at that's the issue podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>